If you're able to kneel with me for prayer, will you do so? Lord, we come to you this morning. We are bowed before you. And we recognize, Lord, that you are the King of kings, that you are the Lord of lords. There is no God like you. You are our peace and our hope. And we just, we thank you that your presence is with us everywhere. And Lord, I thank you that despite the fact that we are not together physically, that we're together um, in spirit with you. And so we just thank you, Lord, that you are um, faithful and true. And whatever we've been carrying this week, Lord, the cares, the worries, the concerns, all the different words that have bombarded us, we just pray now, Lord, that you would be able to, that you would help us to lay those things aside, that we might just be able to um, sit knowing that we are combined, that we are, that we are joined together with others um, in, in, in your spirit, in the spirit of your Holy Spirit, Lord. And we just thank you for that and pray that, that we might be able just to um, open our hearts, Lord, to receive the word that you have for us this morning. And I thank you for Conrad and for his preparation this week to deliver the word that you have for us, Lord. I um, just pray that your peace would be upon him, Lord. I pray that he would keep his eyes fixed and focused on you as, he, um, as you download this word uh, to Conrad, and, 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 and it comes through him, Lord. I pray if there's anything um, that is not of you, Lord, that he is to share, I pray that that would just fall away, and that he would only, um, that he would only preach the words, Lord, that you have given him to preach, and that we would be receptive uh, vessels to receive those words. And may they transform us and cause us to be more like Christ. So I just pray for um, courage and confidence upon Conrad. I pray, Lord, that you would give him strength in his voice and clarity and um, boldness in his spirit. And I thank you that he has been called to deliver this word to us this morning. In Jesus' name. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Thank you, Heidi, for praying for me this morning. That feels like a familiar ritual in the upside down. I want to thank the tech team who showed up this morning. Last week we were not able to go live and this week we are and so I appreciate their being here and uh, just also want you to know that the board met this week to make sure that we are giving consistent messaging and uh, quality messaging and you'll see more of that change in the next couple of weeks. The board is also working at online giving possibilities and so again we will keep you informed as we go through these changes. I just also want to recognize the ministry team and appreciate the way each minister has stepped up and the way each minister is carrying out their ministries in the midst of this change. The world has changed. I don't need to tell you that. I'm spending a lot of time with my students on Zoom these days, processing and reflecting on the short-term but also the potential long-term impact of the crisis we face. A crisis that has opened up an uncertain future for our country and our globe and our individual lives. Uncertainty that just a few weeks ago, we would have been sitting here together, in light of today, feels so predictable. That, that certainty of a few weeks ago feels so predictable and certain and comfortable and secure. As one of you shared with me this week so succinctly, 
We are trying to adapt to a life where what we had planned becomes irrelevant on a regular basis. We are trying to adapt to a life where what we had planned becomes irrelevant on a regular basis. And I'm sure most of you can identify with that. And yet, the uncertainty, folks, was always there. We didn't just recognize it, but it was always there. We have always been a fragile people, vulnerable to disease and natural disasters, vulnerable to sin and death, vulnerable to the enemy who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But the last two weeks or three have caused us to realize in new ways that these truths have been there all along. It's just that in our Western societies, we became fairly effective at masking the uncertainty and creating a degree of comfort and security that most generations up until the 1920s and 1930s had never known. And frankly, that most people in the world today still do not know. And so while this feels like a new reality to us, in some ways we are just aware that our old reality was not sustainable, or as real, or as solid as we thought it was. And to know that, folks, and to embrace that truth, is to open ourselves up to God's reality, and God's truth, in a way that perhaps we didn't before. This is perhaps one of the richest seasons for growth in our life with God, that you and I have ever encountered before in our lives or as a church. Those of you who have developed over the years a strong life with God are most prepared for this time. I've told you that for years and years. But those of you for whom a life with God has been on the back burner for any number of reasons, now is not the time to look back with regret, but rather to look up and to simply confess to God that you realize in a new way you want a life with him, that you need a life with him, that you want to experience his comfort, his presence, and his wisdom. And the wonderful thing about God is that he will simply embrace you and say, of course, my child, I've been waiting for you all along. Folks, this is a Kairos moment, a moment of God breaking into the world. In several conversations over the past week, I found myself comparing this crisis to what I would have called the ordinary world, and that was the language I found myself using. I called it ordinary time compared to this time, and then it hit me, in the church calendar, there are two times throughout the year. There's ordinary time, which occurs outside of the sacred seasons of Advent and Christmas and Lent and Easter. And then there's ordinary time. There's ordinary time that's outside of that. And then there's sacred time, which is those um, Advent, Christmas, and Lent, Easter. If what we experienced when life seemed so solid and predictable and secure was ordinary time, then what we are experiencing today is actually sacred time. It's God's time. It's holy time. We have left the ordinary world and entered a new world where God's reality is recognized, is more true, and more solid than anything we knew before. And I would much rather be in God's time and God's space, in God's reality, in God's truth, than in anything that appeared safe and secure and predictable, but at the end of the day was not. As scary as this place is for us, this is the place where God has allowed us to be. And perhaps even where God intended us to be all along. Regardless of what is going around us, we are solidly yet in God's story. As much in God's story today as we were three weeks ago when everything seemed secure, or four weeks ago. We are in God's time and we are in God's place. We are in God's eschatology that we talked about last fall so much of the time. As a result, as we look at the scriptures today, I think we will hear them differently than we have in the past because we're in a different place. 
Because the reality of uncertainty that we are experiencing is what most Christians, is closer to what actually most Christians have experienced throughout history and a context within which Christianity actually prospered and thrived. The context we are in right now is closer to the uncertainty and unpredictability that Jesus and his disciples felt on the weekend of his suffering and death than it was three weeks ago. Try or not, I think you will hear these words of Scripture and this story today differently than you did before if you are open to the Holy Spirit. As I read from Matthew 26, which is a lengthy passage, I want you to rest. Rest in the story and just hear the words. And think about the words and the phrases that come to your mind as we listen to the story. Again, listening to it from a different context than we would have heard it last season in Lent. Matthew 26, 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When his disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of me. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out thirty pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to one another, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. And Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink the fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. If you're on Zoom, please put your audio off. Thank you. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. And so he left them and went again and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. I don't know what words come to your mind when you heard the story. For some of us, a familiar story. But the words that came to my mind were fear, isolation, separation, anxiety, unpredictability, surrender, conspiracy, and perhaps others. This set of stories, which is is kind of broken up into six or seven stories that Matthew writes, these stories are filled mostly with darkness. Much more darkness than light. For what the disciples had known up to this moment, what had been known to them to be real and true and solid and secure about their lives, the Lord with the Lord was suddenly turned upside down. The Son of God now appeared powerless. The Son of God now appeared vulnerable. This one who had cast out demons, this one who had healed, this one who had walked on water, this one who had broken the loaves and the fishes, this one who had predicted that the temple walls would fall down and be rebuilt, This one who had raised folks from the dead. This one who had cleaned out the money changers from the temple. This one, this one was now fearful, lonely, vulnerable, seemingly unable to change the course of his own life or of history, even saying that things had to be this way in order for God's story to be written for the entire world. Why was he so resigned? He said he could call the Father to bring 10,000 angels, Why in God's name didn't he do it? He was always good at bringing peace to chaos, like that time in the boat. Why does he seem so impotent and unable and weak now? And by the way, where is the father too? If he can't help his own son, how can I ever expect him to help me? How can the death of God be part of the story to the new heaven and the new earth and the eternal kingdom that Jesus kept talking about while he was with us day after day? 
Who was this Jesus after all? And who was the father he came from? Have we made a mistake in investing our last three years with him? Have we made a mistake in giving up everything to follow this wandering Jewish prophet and teacher from Galilee? What if the costs are not worth the risks and sacrifices that we took and that we made for him now? What about the promise that we would be seated with him to reign? To reign over what now? What if the Pharisees were right all along? What if he really was of the devil? What if his teaching and, their, and, and what if his teaching and not theirs was the lie? What if his hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors and drunks and addicts and ex-felons and folks like Zacchaeus and the woman at the well was indeed an indicator that he was really just a sinner at heart? What if we got snookered? What if we got played? What if he is really a snake oil salesman? In the midst of everything falling apart in this passage, at least one person continued to believe. She continued to believe that her Lord was who she had always experienced him to be. In Matthew's gospel, we don't have the name, and commentators debate the name of who this woman was. But she was the most unlikely person in all of this story to continue to believe that Jesus was who Jesus had said. An unnamed woman who came to Jesus and poured over his head an expensive bottle of perfume, perfume worth, commentators say, a year's wages. What a strange thing to do. What an out-of-place thing to do. What an inappropriately intimate thing to do. And on top of it, what a waste. Why she could have sold the stuff and cared for the poor, she could have done something that really mattered. She could have done something that was good and right and true and responsible. But Jesus says, this woman has done a beautiful thing to me. She did this to prepare me for burial. And by the way, what she did will be told throughout the entire world for all of history. Wait a minute, Matthew. Why in all of these entire 56 verses 46, 56 verses of hopelessness, fear, uncertainty, unpredictability, violence, deception, betrayal, abandonment, loneliness, vulnerability, doubt, and darkness. Why this little story of this woman pouring perfume on Jesus in the midst of all this chaos and mayhem and things turned upside down? Because, folks, this is not ultimately a story of darkness that we read. It's a story of light in the midst of the darkness, this is a story of worship in the midst of chaos. This is a story of intimacy in the midst of estrangement. This is a story of faith when everyone else has doubted. This is the story of a woman who saw the invisible when everything visible was shaking around her. This is the story of a woman who moved towards Jesus rather than away from him, as everyone else was doing. This is a story of a woman who never stopped believing, never stopped trusting, never stopped loving, never stopped giving, and who never for a moment doubted that the one who had redeemed her and saved her and restored her was who he said he was all along. This woman kept her eyes fixed firmly on Jesus and expressed her love and faith and confidence exuberantly and extravagantly when everything else was turned upside down. The passage moves on to the story of Judas's betrayal and the extravagant love to extravagant greed, from light to darkness, intimacy to conspiracy. And frankly, for the remainder of the passage, the themes are overwhelmingly dark. Sadness, predictions of betrayal, predictions that everyone will fall away from Jesus, 
loneliness and prayer that he experienced while his friends slept, overwhelming sorrow to the point of death, a plea that the father would take this cup from him, a crowd with swords and clubs and more, truly a moment when all that the disciples knew to be real and true and solid and comfortable and secure was now shaken to its core. And as Jesus said, they would flee. I suspect that through all the pain and suffering and abandonment that Jesus would experience in the next few days, there was at least one memory of light and hope and consolation that he clung to. And that was the story of the woman in Bethany who found him and anointed him for his death, who loved him when others did not, who stayed with him when others did not, who kept the faith when nearly everyone else did not. Folks, as Holy Week approaches and we focus upon the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's Son, I believe this year we can more readily identify with the season of Lent than we could have last year. The darkness of this time reminds us and forces upon us the question that Peter was also asking at one time in the Gospels, Lord, but to whom else could we go? As I have often reminded you in moments of suffering, what other alternative do we have? Death is the only other alternative besides him. The moment you and I are in and that the world is in forces upon us a response that we will make one way or another in this crisis. Will we move towards Jesus or away from him? Will we continue to accept that he is true and real? Or will we abandon him for all that is falling apart around us? Will we, like the woman, choose to believe Jesus is who he says he is? Or will we run for the mountains and hills that are already falling around us? The choices that you and I have are starker than they were during ordinary time. During ordinary time, we had the luxury of hesitating, of seeing where this thing will go, of thinking we had more time. But today, we are all much more aware that we don't have that luxury anymore. The world as we have known it is showing itself for what it has always been, even as Jesus still shows us who he has always been. And that if we turn towards him, we will see that he has been there all along. I want to encourage you and actually plead with you to turn towards God rather than away from God, to trust him rather than to doubt him, to understand that like Gethsemane was part of the grander story that God was writing, so the spring of 2020 is part of a grander story that God continues to write. Just as the Lord's journey to the cross came out of God's love for the world and out of God's mercy, I sometimes think we will look back at this day later in life or from the perspective of the next life and see that indeed this was a moment in which we passed from ordinary time into Kairos time, into God's time, into sacred time. And it was actually God's love and mercy that got us here and got us through it. And that we are experiencing, and that what we are experiencing is a necessary part of the grander eschatological story that God is writing since Eden, and that this in some way or another, what we're walking through fulfills, as did Jesus' journey to the cross, what the prophets were saying all along, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Micah and Malachi and others. As they were saying to us throughout the Old Testament, the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is coming. 
And I can also hear that cloud of witnesses proclaiming, hang in there, saints. The new heaven and new earth are just ahead of you, just around the bend. Don't give up on Jesus now. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. And I thank you for those who are listening now, wherever they are, and those who will listen to your word later today or later in the week. We pray that your word would go deep into our hearts. We pray that we would turn towards you rather than away from you. We pray that we would go deeper with you. That we would take advantage of this moment to hear your voice in ways we haven't heard your voice before. As the taken for granted reality falls down around us, may we hear your reality in new ways. Tune our hearts and our ears to hear your comfort, your consolation, your peace, and your direction and your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. I do want to have a little word here for the youth and children for a moment, as I did last week. Last week, we talked about being afraid, children, about being scared. I spoke to you in saying that it's okay to be afraid, and that it's okay to be scared, and I know that for some of you, that was helpful to hear. And I reminded you of the verse in Psalms, which was the first verse my mother taught me, at what time I am afraid I will trust in you, O God. And I reminded us that our fears actually help us to remember God. Today I'd like to talk to you a little bit about being alone. We're in this period of social isolation from one another. And so not only are we sometimes afraid, but what we most need when we're afraid is other people with us. But we're in a season where not only are we afraid often, but we often feel alone. Most of us don't like to be alone or at least to feel alone. We don't like when our friends are mad at us or talk about us in mean ways. We like to be liked and to be loved and to be popular. Last week I told you a story of when I was afraid walking through a river in Papua New Guinea. Today I'd like to tell you another story when I was in the fifth and sixth grade, and I felt very alone. In the fifth grade, I had a difficult experience with a teacher who disciplined me for something that I didn't realize was wrong, and um, no one else seemed to realize it was wrong. I had always been, I thought, a good kid, trying to follow the rules in part because I knew if I got in trouble at school, I'd get in more trouble at home. My dad was on the school board, and I knew he'd find out. But when my parents learned in the fifth grade what had happened to me and another student that day, they didn't discipline me at all. They and other parents recognized the unfairness of what had happened. And the next year, that teacher was not back in school. But he was replaced by a new sixth grade teacher who I now had. And I, I tried desperately to keep the rules for this teacher. The last thing I wanted was to get in trouble again. But in trying to be good, I found that everyone soon began to call me the teacher's pet. I found that those I thought were my best friends no longer liked me. And those who had not liked me before liked me even less now. During much of my sixth grade year, I was very alone at school, at school events. No one wanted to hang out with me. It was one of the loneliest years of my life. Why do I tell you the story? Because all of us at one time or another in our lives will feel very much alone. We might feel like Jesus has even abandoned us. Our friends might stop texting or calling. Or they might start saying they don't want to come to our house anymore. I just want to say to you that loneliness 
is always a part of life, children, and our youth. It's sometimes an ugly part of our life. But in the story today, we learn that Jesus also experienced loneliness. Everyone who said they loved him eventually ran away from him. At the time when Jesus needed his friends the most, they fell asleep three times. And Peter, one of his very best friends, denied that he ever knew Jesus. And so first of all, children and youth, I want, you to, want to remind you that Jesus knows when you are alone, and he knows how it feels to be alone. And second, Jesus will never leave you alone. You see, his experience of aloneness came so that you and I would never truly be alone, that he would always be with us. Right now, we are in a time when we have to stay six feet away from one another and socially distant. But you know what, children and youth? Jesus is not socially isolating himself from you today. And he never will. Just like he told Joshua that he would never leave him nor forsake him, so he is calling your name, your specific name, and saying to you this morning, Abby, and by the way, happy birthday, Abby, this week. Luke, Isaac, Adina, Carter, Easton, Wyatt, Bryson, Brennan, Elizabeth, Bree, Abby, and on and on, all of you. He's saying to you this morning, I will never leave you or forsake you. Not now, not ever. Over the last 40 years, in other moments when I have felt alone or misunderstood, I often have thought of my sixth grade year. I think about the fact that if I could get through that year, if Jesus was with me then, I can get through what is happening around me right now. Children and youth, I'm sure you have a variety of emotions and feelings about what is happening in the world right now. And I just want to say your emotions, the feelings you have, are normal for a time like this. In the midst of what you're going through, whatever you're feeling, I hope that you find someone you can talk to, a parent or a sibling or a grandparent, and just feel free to tell them what you're feeling right now. And remember, God is with you at all times. Remember that the one who created you and knit you together in your mother's womb is named Emmanuel for good reason. God with us, not one day or another day, but every day. You are not alone, he says. I will never leave you or forsake you. Thank you to all of you who were online this morning live streaming or who will, record, will listen to the recording later. I just want to say to you again as a congregation and to those of you who are listening, we are blessed by your being with us and we will continue to be in touch with you and keep you updated on directions that we're going. Thank you, God's blessing to you, and his peace be with you. So I think I'll go home to do the...